it goes back to like working with great actors like Al Pacino and, and Heath Ledger. They help you relax. That's one thing that they're very great at. They help the people around them to relax so you can bring your game. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that... John Caglione Jr. has had an illustrious career as a makeup artist. Over the last 40 years, his hands and creative genius have helped create new worlds and tell powerful stories on screen. John is credited on over 80 shows and movies, helping to create iconic characters like Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy and all of the amazing characters in that movie, which ultimately earned him an Academy Award, as well as Heath Ledger's iconic face as the Joker, for which that earned him another Oscar nomination. John's work has also influenced many more incredible movies across the years, including Saturday Night Live, Star Trek The Next Generation, Angels in America, The Sopranos, Donnie Brasco, and many, many others. Without John and all of the other incredibly talented makeup, tech, and effects people out there, these modern stories could not happen. The silver screen wouldn't impact and move audiences in the same magical way it does today. John knew he wanted to be a makeup artist when he was just 14 years old, after watching The Exorcist. He became a fan of Dick Smith, who John still believes is the greatest makeup artist of all time. John eventually started a correspondence with Dick Smith, which ultimately grew into a mentor-mentee relationship, and this miraculous series of events came at just the right time in John's life because his family was kind of falling apart, and he was experiencing a great deal a great lack of mentorship in his life, and he needed that. In one phone call, Dick Smith's generosity changed the entire dynamic of John's life. And people really think about this master's work, but the one thing John always thinks about when he thinks about Dick Smith was his love for his fellow man. He was so in touch with people and their lives, it went way beyond the work, is what John said. John has carried that mindset through his own career, and it's paid off. Caring about people and focusing on the personal relationships with Al Pacino specifically ultimately got his got John his shot at Dick Tracy. Then his skill and his talent at his craft got him the job. And since then, since 1990, John is the only makeup artist that Al Pacino will work with. This is a fascinating story, a beautiful journey. Bust out your pens and paper. Don't be a podcast junkie. Take some notes and brace for impact. John Caglione, a.k.a. Johnny Cags. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to have you. Thank you, Mike. It's really great to be here with you. Thanks for taking time. Yes, and, and to Lauren, your lovely daughter, for connecting us, who was, and she's married to a previous guest, Dana Cavalia, the, uh, the awesome uh, 
former strength and conditioning coach for the unfortunate New York Yankees. I'm surrounded by greatness. I really am. I'm excited because you've had a, an illustrious career and you've worked with some of the most recognizable actors in the film industry, people like Al Pacino, Heath Ledger, Warren Beatty, Emma Stone, Rachel McAdams. And I can just keep listing the names of people and your hands, your creative hands and genius has impacted or influenced their ability to tell stories on the screen in one way, shape, or form. And, and you do it in, in beauty makeup, you do it in special effects makeup and aging and all kinds of different stuff. And we're going to talk about your journey. And this, this show, as we were, you and I were talking about before we hit record, that this show is about realizing your God-given potential and, and using that to have an impact in the world on any scale, on a big scale and a small scale. And even though you're not necessarily on the silver screen, you are getting all of those people ready so they can tell other people's stories and move us. And without you, it could not happen. And before we dive into all of that, I always start at the beginning with my guest's origin story. I want to learn a little bit about what it was like growing up in your family. What was it like as a kid in the Caglione household? Well, you know, it was a little crazy. It was a like I think in just about every family, there's a little dysfunction going on there. But I mean, very early on, my father was an amateur filmmaker. And ever since I can remember, almost at birth, uh, my father would spend all night setting up lights in the living room and would film us every Christmas, you know, coming out of our bedrooms to go to our presence. I could barely walk. And there would be these cameras would be in my face and and lights. And it was great because my father was such a film nut that if we didn't enter the room right, my brother, sister, and myself, we would have he would he would cut. <laughs> and then we would have to go back out. We would see our toys and then he would cut and we'd say, that's not right. And he would have to go back out and do a take two. Oh my gosh. And so right from the crib, I was, you know, being groomed to be, you know, in the business that I'm in. Oh my gosh. Was there a record, a record of cuts of takes on a Christmas morning? Yeah, I, I think I've kind of tried to block it out, Mike, but it could have been up to three or five cuts. Oh, you know, I would just get to my like toy train and they he would yell cut and have to move the camera to get a better angle. So yeah, I mean I was, you know, I was destined to be in show business in one form or another. What's your favorite memory of your of your dad? I think you know, just making movies with him. Th that was really fun because we found it was a common interest. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we came together more about talking about films and shooting films and watching movies than just about anything else. It was a, that was a common place for us to get together. Now, you mentioned it in the beginning that, like every family, there was a little bit of dysfunction and that's just family life. I'm, I'm, I come from a big Irish Catholic family and there's definitely, we love each other passionately but we also fight with the same passion and vigor well my wife is an irish catholic family very solid oh know, really family yeah the very strong family ethic there and like every family there's there's always like i don't know about your family but in my family there's always been a rallying cry that our family led with you know in our day-to-day -day life and and did your family have any sort of a rallying cry that you can recall a rallying cry. I, I mean, it was just, I think I learned very early on just to, one thing that I remember is just my mom and dad saying, just be happy with what you do and see where it takes you. 
And, you know, my dad always kind of pounded into my head that he was a tradesman. He had, you know, many trades that he did. He was very good with his hands and he was an amateur artist and filmmaker. And he, he used to tell me, find a trade that you like and that you could be pretty good at. And if you could be better than most, that would be terrific. And, uh, and go for one thing. Don't try to be a jack of all trades. Try to master one thing. Hmm. Find something that you, you really you feel good about and go for that. Those elements kind of always stayed with me. As you were coming of age, what did you begin to believe that you were capable of doing based on that influence that your, your dad had on you? I think it was always something in the film business, you know, movies. Uh, at first, I thought I might might be a stuntman. You know, the films kind of captured my imagination. Not only were they filmmakers, my my father really was. Uh, they also uh, every Halloween they used to make us up, and they would spend hours putting makeup on us, uh, my brother and sister and myself, and we would just laugh for hours. And it kind of caught on. It was like the makeup would be laying around and I'd kind of just go to it. Even when it wasn't Halloween, I'd start playing with the stuff. So all those kind of elements came together for me. Then all the monster films that I would watch on television and the stars just kind of aligned. So as you were starting to play with this makeup, even before you decided to make this a career path, was there some sort of like a, a mystical type thing, type of relationship that you discovered with makeup that makeup was capable of doing something extraordinary early on in grade school i came across charlie chaplin films silent movies i really they kind of really caught my attention and through those silent films i learned about a guy named lon cheney Hmm. who was a, a silent screen star and he was known as the man of a thousand faces and he was a great actor that would apply these complex, grotesque makeups to himself. And that kind of captured my imagination. Like you could just become somebody else. It was just an amazing thing. And, uh, and then, you know, it was the early seventies and they were starting to do films like uh, the Godfather and the exorcist. And the, the timing was just right for all these kind of things that were filtering through my life to kind of come together and say that, you know, that's really what I would like to do. So what attracted you the most to a career as a makeup artist? The thing that most attracted me, I I think it's when I saw the movie The Exorcist Hmm. and the work of makeup master Dick Smith, who did not only which everyone sees in the film is the Reagans, you know, demonic makeup, the possession makeups. But a lot of people don't realize that the old priest, Father Marin in the film, his whole face is rubber pieces because the actor Max Foncito was only 46 years old hmm. when they filmed The Exorcist. So those, those makeups right there and the movie, the content of the film was oh, just yeah. landmark. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was just like, yeah, this is what I really want to do. And one thing I noticed early on in Dick Smith's work was that there was this kind of a, a hyper-realism in his work as a makeup artist that the other makeup artists didn't really have. Cause by that time I was becoming kind of a makeup connoisseur or nut, you know, monster makeup artist. And I was following everybody. Like if you wanted to be a professional baseball player, you'd be tracking the players and know what their, you know, batting averages are and what their swing is like. So Dick Smith at that moment was like, this guy's doing something that nobody else is doing. And it just, the whole thing, the film's content and the makeup really captured my, how old were you? 
But when you first encountered that? I think I was about 14 years old. Wow. And yeah, so at 14, you pretty much knew for sure that you wanted to be a makeup artist. Yeah. In Hollywood. Anywhere. I mean, Anywhere. I didn't even know anything. At the time I was in high school, I was working in a dental lab just to kind of, you know, work and support my family. So I thought, gee, this is a great hobby, you know, doing makeup and monster masks. And if I really don't make it, uh, maybe I'll open up a dental lab and uh, do this as a hobby. I'll have this in my basement. So, you know, I didn't even really dream that I could actually make a career of doing it at that point. Who was the first person, if you had to think back either as a, as a kid or as a young adult or even as an adult, who was the first person to really breathe life into your potential as a creative? Yeah, that was uh, the first person to even give me the idea. I think I had some really cool teachers in high school. In my freshman year, we, we created a, a makeup department in my drama club. So there was Mr. Campbell, my, my social studies teacher who <laughs> ran the drama department. But as a professional, I actually wrote a fan letter to the makeup artist who did The Exorcist. And he did the Godfather movies, Godfather 1 and 2, Dick Smith. And that's an interesting story because I didn't know where Dick Smith lived. I didn't know if he was in Hollywood or where he was. I had no address for Dick Smith. But when The Exorcist came out, my, I found a magazine that my mother had, a gossip magazine. And in the back of that magazine, I came across the address for the Linda Blair fan club at Warner Brothers in Hollywood. Now, this is a, a serendipitous story. I'll make it short. No, take your time. Yeah. it's um, So I, I got the fan letter. I got the fan club address and the exorcist was out of course so i wrote a letter to dick smith to the linda blair fan club one letter and i drew on the envelope a uh, kind of a caricature of dick smith and I, in big block letters makeup artist the exorcist the linda blair fan club and about i guess about a month later i was playing touch football in the street with my friends and my mother yells out the window johnny dick smith's on the phone and so this, it's like the Babe Ruth or, you know, the, uh, the Muhammad Ali of makeup is actually calling me on the phone. That one letter, uh, like I like to say, it was like a note in a bottle and throwing it in the ocean. That one letter made it to Hollywood. And then some very nice person at the studio in, in Warner Brothers forwarded the letter to Dick Smith's house. He lived in Larchmont, New York, which is just uh, in Westchester County. And he, he called me on the phone. And so that started a correspondence. I would send him letters with a cassette tape and he would answer all my questions. And, and then that, that got the ball rolling to the point where he actually took me under his wing as a protege. Wow. And, uh, I would go to his shop, which I would take a bus down to New York and meet him. And we would start to meet and work together to help him in his shop once in a while. I want to I want to pause there for a second and kind of and go back because I think that this is an important lesson about just stepping out because what do you have to lose? And so I I'd love to think to you're you're 14 or 15 years old and you're writing this letter. Mm -hmm. Like what gave you the gumption to write this letter and stick it in the mail and then what did you say in the letter? I think I think looking back over all of it God had something to do with it. I really do. I'm not kidding. Mhm. Mm that was just miraculous. Uh, my mom and dad were divorced, so times were tough. 
Mm. And I don't know, it's that inner voice, if you want to call it, or if you want to call it, I'll call it God, just said, go out and write, you know, just to this inner voice said, just do it. I, I, there was no really thinking or hesitation about it. And, and like I said, times were hard. My family was kind of falling apart. It was really difficult. So it was, it was kind of like a, an SOS letter, I guess, looking back. And uh, my prayer was answered. Hmm. Because that just changed the entire dynamic of my life from that moment, um, making that contact. We are going to talk more about Dick and your relationship with him as a mentee. But I, I want to pause there on your faith because mm-hmm. faith is is critically and a critically important element, I think, also. And I'm still working on it every day. Yeah. And so I'd love to learn from you about the role that your faith plays in your work and what you're doing and when you really became conscious of it? Yeah. Uh, well, I became, you know, it's always been around me being raised Roman Catholic. Uh, you know, we would polish our shoes and get our ties ready to go to, you know, to, to mass in the morning. And it was 18, 19, and I kind of fell away from the faith uh, for a while. And to tell you the truth, I kind of got in trouble in those years. I really did. I really got into trouble getting away from God. But now I know it's all because of him. I, I mean, honestly, everything about my life has been a miracle. Meeting my wife, we're still together 36 years later being married. And I, I thank God every day. I mean, throughout the day, I thank him uh, for all the good things. I've only wanted to do one thing and he gave me the gift to be able to do it. I really, and it sounds cliche, but it's what I do with my gift is my gift back to God. Mm-hmm. I'm still reaching for that. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm even close to scratching the surface to, to get there, but I want to try to get there. It's, mm-hmm. it's everything to me now. Mm-hmm. You, know? you know, it's, it's amazing. There, there's this great book by a guy named Andy Stanley called visioneering and what he talks about is is about God's plan for our lives. And one of the things he says is that what God originates, he orchestrates. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I mean, it's just a confirmation of like what you're saying there, you know? And I think that one of the greatest tragedies that we face today is that people don't believe they have gifts to cultivate. And, and it's the stories mm-hmm. that they've been told that they've they've adopted and made part of their narrative and it sounds like even though you had challenges going on in your life and different types of adversity and you know family drama and things of that nature that you still held on to your own narrative your own story how did you do that yeah i don't i i, I really can't tell you how i did it i always felt like I was being guided along the way. I, I know that might sound a little crazy. And in the last 15 years, I just kind of gave into that. I think I made the mistake for a while, like in my 20s and my early 30s, that I was in control, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, that really kind of got me in trouble. To a certain point, you can be in control, but then you have to turn the control over to, to God and 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 still do your business and still you know work hard and try to you know provide for your family and all the things that go go in your life day to day as my wife would say I, you know you're asking how did i get on that road i think i had to kind of like uh, be brought to my knees mm-hmm. and being in show business like starting at 18 years old in television and um 
having to grow up in the industry, the business kind of finally caught up with me, you know, the partying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I got into alcohol and drugs a little bit, mostly the drink. Mm-hmm. And I thank God that in a way that that happened because I kind of had a breakdown. Mm-hmm. And I was the kind of guy that felt like I could handle it and I didn't need help. Uh, but then I had to come to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And that started me on the road to getting back on track and get started again. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, th- I thank God that that happened. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. But it, it kind of helped me uh, get back to mm-hmm. where I should be. Yes. And I'm still crying every day. I don't even know sometimes. I'm still <laughs> figure it out. Yes, yes. Well, you'll figure it out when you cross over to the other side. <laughs> that's that's yeah. when you'll get the answers. I want to go back to Dick Smith because, you know, mentors are really, really important. And you've had, he was a mentor and obviously you've had other mentors in your life who have helped you get back up off of your knees, back on track. But, but sticking with, with Dick Smith for a minute, you know, mentors and coaches are, are different in the sense that a mentor is someone who's been there, done that, can identify certain pitfalls, certain right tactics versus so they have knowledge and wisdom versus like a coach who might have wisdom but they don't necessarily have the knowledge of being in the game you and know the experience and, of the, it. and the experience of it so i'd love to learn like so you're you're 15 years old you start this correspondence with dick smith this iconic makeup artist what did he teach you and what did he what did he help you believe that you were capable of doing well, you know, just the fact that his artwork was an inspiration to me. The one thing that I always loved about Dick Smith was that he was kind of so tangible. He was like a, uh, he was a real person. You know, he wasn't like this uh, untouchable star that you couldn't really, he, you know, for some, some, the work that he did in his career, he seemed almost like, you know, an untouchable person, but he was a really great, had his feet on the ground kind of guy. The one thing about Dick Smith that I, that came across loud and clear is, is what you're saying, this world's missing, you know, it's, it's the inter, you know, it's like the contact between each other. Mm-hmm. To really get in touch with someone, Dick would always share everything he learned. You know, he really cared about, I think he really loved people. I think in the end, I mean, his work was his work, but he touched so many lives on a personal level, including mine. He was so involved in people's lives that uh, I think that just doesn't really happen much anymore. It just seems so counter to the the, what you think of as Hollywood. I mean, the, the generosity. Yeah, the fact that this guy would just call on the phone. You right. Know? Just he's, I write my number and I just go off about my life. And this man actually takes the time to pick up the phone and make a phone call and, and start, you know, kind of kickstart my life. Mm-hmm. Take an interest at a very, I mean, this is another pretty intense moment in my life where my dad's not around anymore. Mm-hmm. And so this man, this very famous man takes an interest in me and calls me on the phone. So it's almost a mentor father type thing that's beginning to form. Mm-hmm. And where does that come from? Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. The, you know, I mean, I'm, as you're describing it, I'm like, okay, you're Luke Skywalker and he's Obi-Wan. Yeah. And I think it's like almost, you know, people really think about the, this master's work, mm-hmm. but 
one thing that I always think about him when, you know, he's gone now, but was he, his love for his fellow man. I mean, it really was, he was such, you know, in, in touch with people and their lives. It was beyond the work really. Was he a faithful man? Did he have a faith? Yeah, no, I, just before he passed on, we, I, I sat down and talked to him and he didn't believe in God. Oh, wow. He, he, he wasn't sure about God. Yeah. And I was like, Dick, how do you, how does the bee go to the flower? Mm-hmm. You know, how does all this happen? What is, you know, it's such a precious thing. And, uh, you know, and he's like, well, maybe, but I don't really think so. <laughs> but so we, we just agreed to disagree on that one. You had a lot of correspondence on the phone. What was your first, what was it like meeting him for the first time and him taking you under his wing? He had a basement workshop in his little beautiful home in Larchmont, New York. So I, concocted a kind of a story where I was going to go down and interview him for my high school paper, but it was just a chance to really just geek out and, and meet him. So I was about 15 when I actually met him and I went down to, took the bus and met him at his house and, and just spent the whole day with him. And he was like, Johnny, here's a pad and pencil. And we're just going to, I'm going to teach as much as I can in eight hours. Hmm. So coming from nothing, this man just, you know, I spent the whole day in Dick's basement workshop and, you know, there it is, the head from the, Linda Blair's head from the exorcist that spins around, you know, showing me how the eyes work and it, it breathes steam in the cold room. So it looks real and teaching me how to make plaster molds and how to take impressions of people's faces. And it's, it's just an incredible day. I've got, I still got pictures. Wow. Um, visit. Did you ever ask him why he decided to mentor you? I don't think I ever asked him why. Well, you'll get to ask him someday. I hope so. Please, God. Yes. Yes. Now, you've been in the business for how many years now? It'll be 40 years this year. 40 years. I mean, that's a crazy career. And and I want to learn, obviously, people just associate the arts with just struggle. I would imagine that even though you had this great mentor, you probably still had your own struggle that you had to persevere through. And maybe it was shortened because of his relationships. But what was your struggle like? And when was your big break? What was your big moment, if you will? I guess early on trying to you know create a name for myself in this industry. But I was pretty lucky when I came into it in the 70s. There weren't a whole heck of a lot of people doing it. You know, it was the seventies and they were beginning to make, you know, bloody monster movies. And so I kind of came in at the right time. Now it's just exploded. You can go on the internet and it's like millions of people doing makeup and monster makeup, but there's still struggles, Mike. I mean, there is, you know, it's not like I work seven days a week, you know, 52 weeks out of the year. I mean, there's, there's years where I can do like two, three or four movies in a year or a TV show. And then I'll have months where I don't work. Hmm. And it's, you know, you, you learn to, you know, save your money right. for a new day. Mm-hmm. So it's been really good overall my career, but I've had some droughts mm-hmm. and uh, it kind of keeps your feet on the ground. You mm-hmm. know, you're, you're grateful for the next job. Mm-hmm. That's the freelance world. Mm-hmm. It's not like just, you know, I, I, a lot of my, my friends have nine to five jobs and yeah. they're like, Oh, we, you know, we, we hate this work and it's, uh, it's uh, the same thing. And I'm like, pal, you know, you're going to work every day yeah. five days a week. So be grateful because yeah. 
I mean, yeah. it may look glamorous and boy, he works with Al Pacino. But like I said, I could go months without a job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the stark reality is I got to pay my bills too. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. What was your first encounter with Al Pacino? The first encounter was um, Warren Brady brought me out to design Dick Tracy, the characters in Dick Tracy. So I was out in L.A., which that's another miracle because uh, just briefly, at that time, a lot of makeup artists weren't being taken from New York and brought to Hollywood to do movies. And even Dick Smith, my mentor, who had been together for a long time, many years since we we first met, he was telling me, Johnny, you're not going to get Dick Tracy. You're you're a New York makeup guy. That's a Hollywood picture. No one just goes from New York to Hollywood. Fade to I'm going from New York to Hollywood and I'm going to design this movie. So I'm in the lab one night. I used to send the crew home some Friday nights early so I could do some sculpture and do you know just be alone in the shop. The phone rings and it's Warren Beatty. One night we're, we're prepping the prosthetics for Dick Tracy and he says I'm going to send over. We've cast the actor who's going to play Big Boy. And he wants to come over tonight and talk to you about the design of the makeup. I was like, great. He's going to be there at like nine o'clock and he, Warren hangs up the phone. So, you know, it's around nine o'clock and I'm expecting the actor sh- to show up and the doorbell rings around nine fifteen or so. And I look out the side window and Al Pacino is standing there by himself. I'm a big Al Pacino fan. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, the God, I was raised, I was, I used to do the Marlon Brando <laughs> makeup on myself as a kid. <laughs> as Al Pacino. So, um, I'm, I, my knee, my, my knees actually went weak. I was like, I, it was just me and him. There was nobody else around. And I actually, when I opened the door, like th- five minutes later, <laughs> I guess I was hyperventilating. And the first thing Al says is, calm down, take it easy. (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, and that was the first time I met Al Pacino. And we, you know, he invited him into the lab, the shop in LA. And, uh, and we started working on the design for his makeup. And that's that's 30 years later. And that film, that film won you an Oscar. Yeah. Nomination and the ultimate award. Yeah. Yeah. Unreal. I mean, unreal. How, so how did you get the, how did you blow past what Dick Smith said and and go from New York? What happened? Yeah. You know, it's crazy how things can happen in any business, I guess. But I was, uh, Dick Smith recommended me to work on a movie called the cotton club years ago and there was prosthetic makeup in that movie and francis coppola directed that film and so dick and i designed a lot of prosthetic work in the cotton club long story short the production designer's name guy's name is richard silbert and richard silbert has worked with warren Beatty, 
And I met Richard on the Cotton Club and, you know, a little bit here and there and was doing the prosthetics on some of the characters in the Cotton Club. Fade to many years later, he's going to be the production designer on Dick Tracy. And Warren Beatty was looking around for someone that could design the character makeup. Richard Silbert says, there's this guy in New York, this guy, Johnny Caglione, you should, you know, maybe check him out. And so that's kind of how it happened. Richard Silbert mentioned Warren Beatty. So I went out to LA and had a meeting with Warren at his house on Mulholland Drive. I'll never forget, I met Warren and we talked a little bit about Dick Tracy. And I think I was just like enjoying the moment of actually being flown to Hollywood for the first time and meeting a big movie star. and. Warren being very perceptive about people and his intuition. At the end of the meeting, he was walking me to the door and he, he just stopped me and he says, Caglione, you don't think you're getting this movie, do you? And I was like, no, I don't think I'm getting this. I guess I just was just enjoying the entire day with the big movie star. Yeah. And he said, wait a minute. He went, ran in the other room and he gave me the script for Dick Tracy. And he says, I want you to go back to the hotel, read it, and then come back tomorrow morning and give me a proposal for how to do this movie. And so I stayed up all night and I did sketches. And then the next day I went back and a few weeks later they called me. So what was the conversation like when you went back? Well, I'd been up all night. So I was kind of like, probably like just trying not to drool on myself. <laughs> but it was basically about how much he, I thought it might cost. Mm -hmm. uh, which wasn't so important to him, but he just wanted to feel what design ethic might work for the film. You know, what kind of makeup would be, I thought would be appropriate for the film. So I did these little sketches based on the Chester Gould original drawings that were in the comic strip. Mm -hmm. So I did a more fleshed out version of Flat Top, one of the characters, or Prune yeah. Film. Mm -hmm. And I think he could see that these characters could stand maybe next to him with no makeup and that it, people might accept that instead of it being a big cartoony kind of makeup. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was kind of the design ethic that I set. And I think he, he liked that idea. Yeah. Well, ultimately the Academy did too. <laughs> so it worked out pretty good. Yeah. You know, as you're talking and, and I'm just listening to the, the, the people, these different inflection points in your career, the one word that comes to me is relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's all been about relationships that have ultimately helped you get along your path. And, and I'm wondering how your philosophy on building relationships has changed and molded over the course of your 40-year career. Yeah, I, I just, it is about relationships, isn't it, Mike? I mean, it really, it's about caring. I, I think it's about loving and caring. I mean, really, that's what I've learned in my old age now is that we really have to care for each other as much as possible. Mm -hmm. It's really about what we have between us, me and you right now Yeah, you know, on this computer. Yeah. Everything else seems to be a bunch of kind of something else really sometimes mm -hmm. to me now, you know, mm -hmm. it's really about this, there's yeah. work and there's art and there's business and that's good, but it's all kind of wrapped slightly around me and you here right mm -hmm. at this moment. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the the way I feel feel about things these mm -hmm. days. 100%. 100%. Yeah, this is the real deal. Everything else is kind of, you know. I, well, at least I'd like to think that in my business, if you can keep real for yourself and really, really believe that in your soul, 
people can pick up on that, you know, and if they don't, that's okay too. But now you've been working with Al Pacino for 20 plus years now. And and, and in yeah. fact, I think I read in an article, just, I think it was recent that you're the only makeup artist he'll work with. So like, how did, how did that whole relationship develop? And, and two things like, or maybe more than two things. Cause I, I I'm Irish and I like more than I like as many, as many as I can. This might be a very short answer, but yeah. go ahead. But you know, the, how did that relationship develop? Number one. And number two, what's the most surprising thing you've learned about yourself in developing that relationship? And then maybe what's the most surprising thing you've learned about Al Pacino in working with him over the last 20 years? Yeah, you know, I, I still, I think you'd have to ask Al why he keeps calling me because I still don't really know. I mean, honestly, I, I know that's a short kind of stupid answer, but I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I know for sure that um, I'm always going to tell the truth. You know, I'm not going to be one of those people that is just going to just go along and agree. And I know my place in the actor's kit, I guess, you know, I'm not trying to, uh, upstage anybody i'm just a tool in pacino's kit when you know he needs a certain thing or wants to look a certain way Mm -hmm. for whatever reasons he's got which i still can't understand i'll get a call which is amazing i think for him now that knowing him all these years the other answer al is a very real person i mean he's not detached from where he came from and what he's been through and where he's trying to get I don't, you know, that's one thing I always pick up about him is that he's very in touch with people and himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, when I'm around him, we are constantly talking about how he grew up in the Bronx and how that struggle was for him and his, his mother and father. That's really right here for him. And then he goes about his business, but this is a, this is a real person you're dealing with. It's mm-hmm. kind of hard to separate it because he is an icon. Sometimes I look at him and it's like, wow. But he has a way of making you feel like, you know, we're all on the same page here. We're all on the same planet. And that's something that I try to share with other people. It's about us here right now. You know, one of the things you said a second ago is that you're always going to tell the truth. And I think that that is such an important lesson that that people. Some people don't want to hear it. but (laughs) They don't want to hear it. But a lot of people will skirt the truth because they're afraid of what the truth might cost them. And have you ever had an experience where just being honest cost you? You know, not big in my eyes cost me things, but it's funny because like we'll go back to the Academy Award and winning the Academy Award. I mean, the first person I had to thank was God in my speech on the stage. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a, trying to be a godly, like, uh, you know, be like me and that kind of, I'm still trying to figure it out for myself. Right. But I, I felt that I really had to thank God because everything about my life up to that moment and beyond has been because of him. And I heard some nice things about that, but I heard a lot of negative things too. Like, I can't believe that you would thank God you know, before anybody else. And there was that whole thing mm-hmm. going on. And so, yeah, you know, you're speaking up and telling the truth sometimes, you know, you have to be able to take it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's, it's about how I feel and telling the truth yeah. for, my, for my own truth. Yeah. What's powerful is in, in what you do, from my, you know, un, untrained point of view, 
I mean, obviously mm-hmm. I'm not a makeup artist. Um, I couldn't even like put eyeliner on myself if I needed to, or anybody else for that matter. Just call me, man. <laughs> you got my number now. <laughs> call me I, out, Mike. You know, I appreciate that. You know, my, 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 my wife might, uh, you know, maybe you, you can, maybe you can help, help maybe you can help with this. I need some, oh, I need some of this, you, you know, man, that's not a problem. <laughs> I got, I'm follically challenged. I, I was thinking about Heath Ledger and, and that iconic face that you created in the dark night. And, mm-hmm. and it's something that I think is burned into everyone's memory. It was so well, that's really because of him, you know. I mean, that's really yeah. But he, you, he, you gave him the ability to do that, right? We would like to think that's the case, but because if he if he had a clean traditional look, he would never have been so intimidating. Yeah, I guess that's part of what Chris Nolan, the director, and and uh, Heath were going for. That kind of organic. What would it really be like if this madman? slept in his makeup for two weeks and didn't take a bath. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you have all those organic details and direction to follow. So what was the, what was the process of, cause I know you had some constraints that you did have to operate in and, and everybody who's creating has some kind of constraint, but what was the process of getting to that result where you're like, where everybody was like, that's it. You know, the, it goes back to like working with great actors like Al Pacino and and Heath Ledger. They help you relax. That's one thing that they're very great at. They help the people around them to relax so you can bring your game. Mm. And that's very important to the overall look of any makeup or whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. And these great actors can do that with the people that they're working with. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing mm-hmm. where they're getting you to relax so your hands can kind of be free. But uh, very early on in the dark night, I'm trained as a as a makeup artist to make everything look really as good as possible. And so the first makeup test or two, the Joker makeup looked just too clean. Mm-hmm. It looked like a makeup artist did it. And that's the last thing that you really want for the character. So I kind of had to find out for myself that imperfection was perfection in the makeup. Mm. The makeup to be imperfect and to let my hand go and let things drip and and be blurry was the theme of the day. It had to be that way. But it was a kind of a struggle as a trained makeup artist where you're, you know, you're trying to get every line right. And then Heath and I discovered that if he made certain facial gestures in the chair and I painted over those those lines, it would create all these creases. I tell people it was kind of like a dance in the makeup chair. With Heath and I, he would be able to move his face a certain way and smile, and I would know what he was doing, and I would be able to design the makeup around his movements. It mm-hmm. was it's probably the first and the last I'll ever have a situation like that. Did you see he was great when he, in the process of doing that, did you see him become more and more and more and more like the Joker? It was kind of like, no, he would always be kind of Heath. Mm-hmm. And I'd get a big hug in the morning, every morning, never missed it. And then he'd plop in the chair and we'd do it. And he, he never really went over. He always had his lines memorized. He mm-hmm. would never even, they have sides, these little miniature versions of what the actor's going to say. They give you this little sheet of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I don't really remember Heath ever having that in his hand when he sat in the chair, in the makeup chair. He already had it all kind of worked out in his head mm-hmm. and had it everything memorized. And, you know, he ne- I never really saw him become the Joker in the chair. 
Some actors do it, mm. you know, they'll start to assume the position and become it, but Heath could jump in and out of it. Like mm-hmm. on set, he would be talking to the director and having a cigarette and being Heath and they'd say, okay, we're ready. And then he would get into this hole, like in one millisecond, mm. this mm-hmm. change. And that's pretty amazing. Johnny Depp can do that too. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, cause, cause you worked with, you've worked with Johnny Depp on a few different things, but one of them was Donnie, uh, what's that? Donnie Brasco. Yeah, Donnie Brasco. And I saw a picture of him. You're working on him, and he looks like Donnie Brasco, but he's like reading the newspaper. Yeah, there's a scene in the beginning of the film where he's trying to infiltrate the, the mobs, uh, the, their hangout in a bar. And uh, yeah, he's reading a paper at the bar. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I'm fixing his fake 70 sideburns. Yeah. <laughs> sideburns and a mustache on him for a while. You know, if you were sitting across the table from, from someone who is, and it doesn't have to be somebody who's an aspiring makeup artist or an aspiring entrepreneur or aspiring anything, but somebody who, who really wants to live fully who they were created to be and really get in touch with that and have an, impact moment with that like if lauren came to you and was was sharing with you that she didn't feel like she was fulfilling what she was created to do what would you tell her Uh, well probably the first thing i would do say to her is what i've done for myself and i i would pray i really would i prayed to god many times Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and uh, the call was answered I mean, it didn't happen right away sometimes, but definitely, I mean, when I was, uh, you know, in upstate New York wanting to be a makeup artist, I remember praying to God to please help me, you know, and make it and for a door to open. And then, you know, get in recovery, you know, just getting well and to quit drinking. There were moments in my life where, I mean, there was a time when Lauren was a baby, was very young, where I went to the bank and I only had $28 in my account. Hmm. And I remember praying, you know, for help. Mm. And then like three days later, a job came through. Mm. So, you know, it's just, like I said earlier, the more I got away from God and and my belief, you know, it just, I just got away from everything else. The word word that just came to me right now is persevere. Like I could imagine you, I could see you at that ATM seeing that number flash up on the screen and I've got four kids and I could, I could I could feel like the, 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 the shock or the, the feeling of, of fear that you were on path because you were in touch with what you were created to do. You were able to persevere. But, you know, Mike, I, I married a very great woman. I really did. You know, her name is Helen, my wife. And when I gave up on God, my wife still always went to church every Sunday and got the girls dressed mm. and never really gave me any grief. You know, I think she just always prayed that I would kind of find it again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's really the center of my life. It's mm-hmm. always been, even when I didn't even know it, mm-hmm. she always had a good sense of her belief in God and Jesus Christ. And, mm. and, uh, she was kind of our anchor. She was always, she was always tethered to reality Mm. even in the i thank god for her because being in this crazy business helen was always the one to keep me my feet on the ground and she never gave up on me even when i was going through the drinking and all that stuff she she she, i remember her telling me i'm not going to let you go in the in the height of all of the problems i was having and she hung tough so i mean 
you know, I just thank God for her. Most of all, mm-hmm. I thank God for her because he definitely put her in my life. He, he knew where I was going. I think I really believe it. And he knew it all along, you know, and I love uh, it. I'm so grateful to her. Yeah. To God for just bringing her to me. I mean, that's just a miraculous story too. I mean, she came to Saturday night live. I used to get comp tickets to the, to the original show. I started back in the seventies with Belushi and Aykroyd and I used to get tickets and she came on like this double date. I didn't even know who she was, but Mike, I'll tell you when she stepped off the elevator, I was like broke, had no money. I wasn't thinking of ever getting my parents were divorced and my mind was far away from anything, any attachments. I was just beginning my career. And this, this beautiful Irish girl, Helen walks off the elevator and it, you know, it's an inner voice or something, man. I don't know what's going on. There it yeah. is again. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I've got to like, I've got to know this person a little bit. No, I, I've known my, my wife since we were nine. I didn't know that I was going to marry her until one day she walked into a bar at my sister's 25th birthday party after ha- not having seen her for two or three years. Right. But at the end of that night, I yep. knew yeah. that I was going to marry Lisa Johnston. Yeah. She, almost 14 years. Oh, that's great. God, 14 this has been an absolute blast talking with you. And and we're gonna stay in touch mm-hmm. and can, and find other ways to collaborate, I'm sure. Um, and and I told your daughter that I look forward to meeting all of you sometime soon. But Let's try. I uh, I I ask I ask four I final questions of every guest. Okay. The first is I want to make sure that I can point people in a direction where they can learn more about you and your work. So if you could point them anywhere online, where would where would you send them? Yeah, well, there's, you know, there's lately since Paterno came out, I've I've been doing some more interviews, which, you know, we're behind the scenes guys. So we really don't, you know, we're not out there in the forefront, but, you know, if you just type in my name, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of interviews. I have a website and uh, I try to answer everyone if they have any questions at all. I'm always, you know, on Facebook or out there, social media. So you can get in touch if you want to. We'll link to that in the show notes for sure, too. Oh, cool. Thank you. Now for the three final questions that I ask of every guest, okay? And, and, and this first one is fun. The next two are a little bit more deep, uh, but... I'm a pretty shallow person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very simple man, Mike. Well, that's okay. You know, the simplicity, as, a, as one of your uh, Italian ancestors said, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. So you're, you're the most sophisticated person, you know. Uh, the, uh, the, this question is if you could take any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? I don't know. Just trying to reach as much people as possible and, you know, get the word out that anything's possible, I guess. Is that a superpower? That's a superpower. Yeah. Yeah. Getting people to believe that anything's possible. Yeah. Because you already have that skill set for sure. But to, to turn that into a superpower would be remarkable. What would be yours? What would be yours? Mine would be... It's kind of what you're doing here, isn't uh, it? It's, it's, part, it's part of this, but like I'm Catholic also, and we believe in, in the amazing the saints, you know, and that if I could read people's hearts, yeah, because people don't believe in themselves. They don't, they don't believe that they were created to do more they can possibly ask for or imagine. And I believe, like not to get on a, a Christian soapbox here, but everybody who listens to my show 
everybody who listens to my show knows that I'm Christian and knows that I love God and that I believe God has created us to do great things. And I believe that God breathed life into us, right? So if this great creation, God, created us and breathed life into us, well, he didn't breathe life into us to go do something small. Right. And too many of us believe that we're not capable of doing big things. And so we settle. Yeah. And the word believe, one of my mentors, he studies words, the meanings of the origin of words and the meaning of words. And the word believe, the, the, the second half of that word leave is a German rooted word and it means love. Hmm. So when you believe, you love. Right. So when you believe in yourself, you love the creation that you are. And we don't, we, we, there's too many people who are walking around like loathing who they are. I know. Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to, I want to fix that. I'm trying to, to build a platform to, to fix that. And, and my, my, my motto is own your story, claim your purpose, make an impact. Cause everybody wants to make an impact, but the only way you've got to go way back and you've got to not only know your story, know where you've come from, but mm-hmm. you've got to own it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we're first not taking care of ourselves, how can we take care of our brothers and sisters? Right. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. We first must take care of ourselves the way God planned it to be for us so that we can take care of our brothers and sisters, you know, 100%. The whole point, everything else is forget it. Yeah. You know? That's yeah. the whole thing. Yep. Use our skills to get that out and for people to maybe see that in us. 100%. Now, the next question, it's also a doozy. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's I'm a very simple, man. So yes. I do my best. What are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing our full potential? Three lies. Well, you know, the most obvious ones is I, I can't do that. I mean, that's just, you know, I've, or I've never done that. How could I start now? But that's part of the fun is the fear, you know, the fear of it all, mm-hmm. the, the unknown of it all, I mm-hmm. guess. But I think, I guess it's those three mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. things that, you know, I love it. Will I fail? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what will I do if I fail? Mm-hmm. You know, failure. You'll survive if you fail. You'll survive. The, uh, I heard this great acronym. The, the word fail means first attempt in learning. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's great, man. Now, the last question is, is a fun one. And I think that this one will be, will be easier for you to answer. And it, no, it, no, is, no. it is, how will you measure your life? Yeah, I was just telling someone recently, I don't think it's about my work and my career, you know, even though that maybe attracts people to me on some level. But I don't know. I think just to be present in other people's lives as much as possible and whatever that means to serve other people, I think that's really it. That's what my job is. I'm a service to other people. I mean, you talked about Al Pacino. I'm actually serving uh, his work. Mm-hmm. And so whatever that is, whatever that is, it's, you know, to um, just to help as many people as possible mm-hmm. and, you know, get out of this place alive. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's it. You know? Yeah. Well, Van Gogh couldn't paint without a brush. So, yeah. well, Johnny Cags, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. It's been a blast, man. 
Thank you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Mm-hmm.